The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I don't know, Data. My gut tells me we ought to be listening to what this guy's trying to tell us. Your gut? It's just a, a feeling, you know, an instinct, intuition. But those qualities would interfere with rational judgment, would they not? You're right. Sometimes they do. Then why not rely strictly on the facts? Because you just can't rely on the plain and simple facts. Sometimes they lie. They can lead to the wrong conclusions, but they cannot lie. Yeah? Well, what do you think? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 22nd, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call to contact us and join the show with your comments if you like, or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. And of course, there's your one-stop shopping, justrightmedia.org, if you want to see, or hear rather, the, all the archived shows that are available online. So welcome to the show today. Basic theme for the show today is going to be once again one of my faves, global warming. David Suzuki insists that the debate is over. But he admits there's something that he doesn't know, and I think we're going to get into that. And near the end of the show, I want to give you a little bit of a personal illumination on the whole light bulb thing that was going on that I started on another show earlier. But first, to begin the show... Before we move on to our main theme today, there's there's always an eternal question that, that bears asking and which was hinted at by our opening clip on the show today. Just how do you know who is right? How do you separate fact from fiction and how can you ever know if anyone is ever right at any time? What's real, what's unreal, and what's true and what's not true? Uh, I bring this up in a very generic fashion at this point, but it certainly pertains to everything political, including our theme today, because if there's any place that I see a tremendous amount of confusion and uh, outright um, non-truth, shall we say, it is in the whole uh, global warming issue, but we'll get to that one later. On On a show like this, which is called Just Right... I'm actually a little surprised at myself for not having asked the question quite that directly in this way, So, but we certainly elaborated on it uh, back on December 13th when, when we talked about truth being in the philosophy department. On January 10th, when we talked about getting real and the difference between um, trying to determine what is real rather than predetermining what is the truth and then you know, bending reality to the truth you've already made up. So both shows really contrasted the distinctions between reality and truth, or between facts and truth, in a much more detailed way than I intend to do today. But I find it necessary to ask that question given the theme of the rest of the show, and given the theme of what voters and taxpayers will soon be confronted with in spades during the second wave of the climate change onslaught of propaganda, which I'll be discussing, of course, in a few minutes. Now, propaganda, of course, according to me, but who the heck am I, right? Uh, 
And why should you or anyone else, for that matter, believe anything I have to say? Is the truth determined by its messenger? Like, do I just hate Al Gore and what he represents? <laughs> A lot of people seem to think that way. And, uh, oh, and by the way, my answer to that question is no and yes, respectively. But if you're not sure who's right, then allow me to offer you some consider for consideration the sort of quick, easy way to test the waters of truth and reality, etc. There's certainly nothing new here. And the formula is one that has been enunciated by the so-called Fifth Estate, which is the media, as a matter of its guidance in collecting the facts. Uh, now, of course, the issue of whether or not the media is responsibly acting upon these investigative principles is another issue entirely. And it's even the name of a TV news show, which you all know, and it's called W5, and it's, the five W's, of course, are who, what, where, when, and why. Now, this is just a starting point, not the end point. But if you want to know who's right, then it also helps to know what is right. For, and, for example, it might also uh, help to know why it's right. But it shouldn't take more than one glaring inconsistency to begin a process of elimination. You can know who's right by knowing what's right, why it's right, when it's right, where it's right. Uh, right in this case not always meaning morally right or anything like that, but factually right, as in, as in correct, as in not in politically correct. Now, as simple as this sounds in theory, it's certainly not simple in practice, especially when we do not have any knowledge of the five W's. That's where it gets a little tricky, doesn't it? What if we ourselves do not know whether or not, say, a particular scientist's discovery or a politician's point of view on global climate change is valid or not? We may not know the what, when, where, or why on that particular topic. We are only confronted with a who, a person, or a, or a group of people who are bringing their message to us and then expect us to accept their views on faith, which is the only recourse available to people who don't have knowledge. Now, you don't have to believe anything I may have to say on this show. They're my opinions, and you can agree with them or not. There's a disclaimer, in fact, at the beginning of, the, of every show to kind of remind you of that fact. You might agree with me on faith, or you might agree with me on the basis of reason or knowledge, or you might even disagree with me on either of those two grounds. But you can always call in or write to express your disagreement, and if we continue to disagree, I believe that it is right that each of us can continue on our own ways without one person forcing his or her views on the other person. And that's one of the standards I use, whether something's right or wrong. That's one of the whys. I believe it is wrong for one person to impose his or her viewpoints on another person. Because my standard of what is right or wrong is basically one of freedom and one of consent. And in this belief, I fully recognize I'm kind of in a really distinct minority, especially in politics. Politics is all about some people forcing other people to support their belief systems and religions. And if you're not on that wavelength, politics is simply not a comfortable place to be. Even, uh, you know, you, though you have to be there if you want to do anything to protect yourself. You know, there's a lot of people out there who want to punish you for refusing to become a true believer. And in politics, there is no opting out. Death and taxes, isn't that what they say? And there's a bigger question involved here as well. Who is the final authority on what's right or wrong, or who's right or wrong, that kind of thing? You know, I always like the answer that Captain Kirk 
gave in a couple of Star Trek episodes when his authority to judge the right and wrong on a given matter would be questioned. He'd, he'd look at the person and say, well, you know, they'd, they'd say to him something like, you know, who the heck do you think you are to say this type of thing? And he'd just look at them and say, well, do, who do I have to be, right? And uh, that is the right answer, even though it's a question. Because it's a question that forces the challenger of one's authority to establish some kind of objective standard that would be acceptable to that person. Now, on moral issues, it's a given that anyone asking something like, what makes you right, uh, doesn't know the answer to that question, or disagrees with your interpretation, or they wouldn't be asking the question in the first place. So, you know, the answer to that question, like who's the final authority, won't be found by asking who, what, when, where, or why, but rather how. And, you know, we always have, in my circle, we have this uh, little saying, you know, reality reason, self, and consent. That's sort of the hierarchy of, uh, of the how. Reality, of course, is the final arbiter as to what is true or false of any claim. Reason is the means by which we discover that reality. Self is the person who must apply reason to that process. And consent means that you are your own authority. You can choose your associations accordingly and voluntarily. And insofar as you make no claim on another individual's identical and equal right to act as his own moral authority, that authority is very legitimate and valid. So you don't have to ask, you know, who's right. You can be right. You can be wrong. Anybody can be. That's not the issue. That's a much more objective thing. And, of course, in no way does this mean that morality is subjective or that facts are subjective or that truth and reality are subjective. Uh, those are subjects for a whole other show. We've discussed them many times on this show. We'll do so again. But I just wanted to make those you know, opening comments because uh, I'm kind of setting the groundwork for some stuff coming up later, which I'll get into as well later in the show. A couple of things, too, I just wanted to bring up before we continue and get into our main theme. Just listen to the radio this past week. Uh, uh, and this is, a dis this is an issue we discussed, too, about forced voting and getting more people out to vote and all that kind of stuff. I heard Mel Hertig in a radio interview elsewhere in town lately, and, of course, he's one of Canada's gurus on the left, and he was supporting proportional representation as the key to saving Canada. He, you know, he's one of these people that believes, apparently, that things in Canada would get better if only more of us voted you know, we've only got basically three parties that people pick from. I don't know how he thinks things are going to get better when those choices don't change. But it seems to me there's a lot of people that think that 60 out of 100 is better than 30 out of 50. You ever think of that? Maybe maybe they think it's a bigger percentage? <laughs> but how, even in his wildest imagination, he can envisage a change of government coming out of this numbers inflation, I have no possible way of knowing. And there again is just an example of another majoritarian uh, which I, you know, that concept I discussed on a previous show. And uh, again, valueless and clueless. You cannot promote values or represent anything meaningful if you're just a majoritarian. Because then anything, here's a guy who decides that what is right and who's right is the majority. And that has been a formula for totalitarianism in history over and over again. Now on another issue that we just discussed last week, Location, 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 and on how it relates to prostitution in this country, I no sooner applied this well-known real estate maxim than to discover it again 
Believe it or not, in context of the same issue, prostitution, in the pages of the National Post, when I finally got caught up in about three weeks' backlog of clippings over the long weekend there, Street Walkers and Chadors by Julia Lapidos in the May 1208 National Post explains how prostitution works in Islamic countries. Quote, given the Islamic dress code in Iran, how do Persian prostitutes signal their trade? End quote. And she answers, and here it is, location, location, location. Explaining how there are over 85,000 prostitutes in Tehran alone and that they can legally ply their trade as long as they stick to the known designated areas. Apparently, most people and most outsiders wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them and the regular folk moving about. Now, you might be saying, hey, wait a minute, isn't prostitution illegal in Iran? And the answer is, yes, it is. It's even punishable by death. But, explains the article, quote, there is a loophole in Islamic law called Sighe, or Sihe, depending on how you might pronounce it, if it, the G is silent or not, I'm not too sure, or temporary marriage. According to Shiite interpretation, a man and a woman may enter an, an impermanent partnership with a preset ex expiration date. I think I've heard some people, you know, suggest that for a regular marriage, but uh, that's, that's an aside. Now, there's no legally required minimum and no need for official witnesses, end quote. Which again, you know, brings to mind my comments last week about the strange juxtaposition of Catholicism, given, it, given its tenets on sexuality, with the liberally tolerant attitude that Catholic jurisdictions exhibit towards everything from pornography to prostitution. If you missed all that, it was on last week's show. Again, you can get that at www.justrightmedia.org. I bring this to your attention just as a footnote to what we talked about last week on our show, entirely devoted to sex. Check it out at the, on that website where you can get our complete past archives, of course, available to you at no cost for your information and enjoyment. Now, when we return after this quick little break, David Suzuki, The Weather Channel, Al Gore, and London's own Glenn Pearson, what are they up to? We'll be back right after this. I think the biggest reason we broke up, though, was religious differences. It wasn't infidelity, it was religious differences. I was raised Roman Catholic, all right? I'm a Catholic. She, on the other hand, was a whore. <laughs> you can see the problems there. We have kids, which way are we going to raise the kids? <laughs> watching the Weather Network this weekend. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I sat down with Doc, uh, Dr. David Suzuki, and we got together again recently to go through some of what we had talked about initially to find out where we are now. And really importantly, because we as Canadians feel we should be world leaders, are we being good world leaders? Here's my conversation with David Suzuki. When you first showed me on your, your channel, you got a big kickback, uh, a concerted effort on the part of the anti-global warming folks that said, what the hell are you doing putting Suzuki on your channel? Now let's see what happens. Uh, my feeling is there has been a sea change. And really, you know, when you talk about tipping points, I think that an inconvenient truth started that whole process of a major, major tipping point. When Al Gore won the Nobel Prize just a few uh, months ago, 
there was an immediate reaction from the anti-global warming people that said, this is a victory for junk science and all that. What I think is, this is the last murmurings of a group of dinosaurs that are fighting what the vast majority of people have moved way past. They're not debating the issue, is it happening or not. So from that sense, we've really passed a tipping point. The question is whether we're going to get the leadership to really doing the deep things that are, that are needed, the big shift. Back, you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz. I'll be with you from now until noon. And there you just heard Dr. David Suzuki on the Weather Channel. I actually turned my VCR and left it running for a few hours to see how much propaganda I could pick up, and boy, did I hit some interesting stuff, and that was just one of those issues. Now, I warned you all about the upcoming propaganda campaign. Um, Looks like the troops are now at the doorstep getting ready to do their second attack upon us here. And I have to, you know, here I am. I'm one of these, uh, I'm in the group of dinosaurs who are fighting, you know, that vast majority of people who have moved past the whole issue. You know, they're not debating, you know, is it happening or not, he says. Now, by tipping point, Suzuki really means that he's found a religious movement dedicated to action without thought. And that's why there's no time for debate. And the big shift he's talking about, beyond being a tax shift, it's not about environment, folks. It's not about environment. Never was. It's a tax shift he's talking about. And, uh, you know, it's a big shift to a completely totalitarian regime of the green movement. And I use very strong words in this respect because if there's anything that is representative of fascism in North America, North America today, it is the Green Movement, its entire ideology, its way of thinking, its history, its background, its morality. It is completely fascism. And most people do not understand that. They think fascism is something that people hate. People love fascism. They loved it in Europe when it came through Europe. I'm reading a book right now called, um, I think it's called Liberal Fascism, and it's a fascinating book, which I will be highlighting a much of, because it's a wonderful history, completely, it was only written just in the past few months, and completely agrees with things that I thought I was the first guy to discover on this show over about a year ago. Now, uh, you know, this has always been the ideology of all environmental movements that are united in this single theme, and that theme is an anti-capitalist, anti-freedom environment. And you're going to hear more from Suzuki admitting to this on this show today. I took it right off the Weather Channel. Now Suzuki may well be right that my assessment is the last murmuring of a dinosaur. Because the real issue that we're not debating is it happening or not, he says. Uh, The it in this case being the global fascism through the green movement. You know, I always find that word it interesting. David always uses it. It, it, it. You know, it, it is a package deal. Pronouns are package deals. Does it mean global warming? Does it mean global cooling? Does it mean climate change? Does it mean CO2 legislation? Or does it mean the theory that mankind is responsible for climate change? Or is it his personal religion? You know, he doesn't say. He never does. And if there's one thing, and I'm going to put it to you right now. Here's the challenge. You tell me. Have you ever heard David Suzuki talk science about the global warming issue? He doesn't do that, you know, because science inc- requires inquiry. And then you do have a debate, and that's what they don't want. I find interesting, too, you know, you see during what you don't see 
over the soundtrack is what they're showing you on the TV set. And they're always the same pictures, smokestacks with this billowing, dirty smoke coming out. You know what? CO2 is invisible. I spent a whole 15-minute section about how Al Gore explained that very point and that the reason that most people won't go along with it is because it's invisible. Of course, this was his, his uh, parallel to the free market, the invisible hand, you see which I got into in good detail there. So, you know, they're using, even the imagery that they are using doesn't match the argument that they're making. So, uh, interesting, I, I was going through the Londoner and I found a fascinating letter by uh, writer Peter Popper. Some dubious claims, he says, it appeared on uh, May 14th. And in, in that letter, he uh, takes to task uh, writer Gord Harrison's musings on climate change, which I have done on this show before. Looks like I'm not the only one who can see this, but I, I had to bring this one to your attention, and I quote here, quote, I never know whether to laugh or cry when I read Gord Harrison's musings on climate change, but his April 23rd column took the biscuit. For those who missed it, Gord recounted his recent play date, and that's a good word for this, with London North MP Glenn Pearson, at which they had discussed Mr. Pearson's recent visit to Montreal for a training session with climate change guru Al Gore. Now, at this point, the writer goes on to cover territory that we already covered many times in detail on this show, relating to the outrageous claims made by Gore in his propaganda piece, An Inconvenient Truth, how it was deemed alarmist by a British judge, etc., etc., and, of course, they found in that court case that not only were the film's uh, claims not only untrue, but often the opposite of the truth. But to continue his letter here, quote, Gord Harrison's playmate, Mr. Pearson, claims, quote, the vast majority of scientists, now more than 90%, concur with Mr. Gore's findings, end quote. And he continues, I'd be interested to hear the source of that claim. It reminds me of the old joke that 75% of statistics are made up. According to the British judge, Mr. Gore's apocalyptic views are, in fact, not shared by the majority of scientists. I'm sure it's true that a majority of scientists would agree the planet is currently warming as we come out of the last mini-ice age. But according to many, that warming consists of a barely discernible one-degree increase in the global mean temperature since the late 19th century. And the support for claims of man's responsibility for this small amount of warming is far less overwhelming. The Earth's climate has varied naturally in the past. In the last millennium, we had both the medieval warm period and a mini-ice age. And some scientists hold that any current warming trend is just another natural variation, while a number of solar scientists seem to feel that solar, rather than human activity, is the main driver of climate change. And even if you stipulate that any climate change is man-made, there is disagreement over whether climate change is a bad thing or whether it's even a good thing or whether it would be beneficial to try and stop it. Of course, none of these criticisms of Mr. Gore's views will be mentioned in Mr. Pearson's upcoming presentations, end quote. Well, good for you, Peter. I see uh, someone else can see what's going on here. I discussed this very issue on our April 10th show, which, if you want to check it out, it's the heading, Bad Al Gore, Taking the Moral Low Ground, when I warned you of the liberals' upcoming onslaught of all this un ignorance and unreason, all intended to increase taxes and give government uh, almost total control of our lives, basically. Now, of course, on that show, I, I pointed out how what they were doing was staking out the moral high ground. They wanted to turn this into a moral issue, that the science and all the rest of it doesn't matter. Now, 
Since Al Gore's pronouncement that forming a moral framework for his anti-capitalist ideals was the way to go, we now find that uh, one of his new disciples, London North Centre MP Glenn Pearson, has been labelled by Maclean's magazine as the last decent man in Ottawa, quote-unquote. Pretty hard to fight that kind of messenger, isn't it? Regardless of the message. And according to a May 5th, uh, 2008 Free Press article by Chip Martin, quote, the McLean's piece talks about the respect Pearson engenders among his fellow MPs of all stripes and the almost unnerving silence that greets him when he rises to speak in the Commons. Quote, usually when I stand in Parliament, there is a great respect because I came here with a background of helping people, end quote, said Pearson from his Ottawa office. Or maybe it's... Just because Glenn doesn't come with any prepackaged ideology that anyone can really dig their fingers into yet, maybe they're all waiting to see how they can use this guy and his positive virtues for their own unvirtuous agendas, and I do fear that is exactly what is happening here. Glenn may well be a sheep among wolves, but his real stripes, if he ever develops any, will have to show sooner or later. And now that he's aligned himself with, you know, the irrational anti-capitalist climate change religionists, and that's what they are, I think it's become sooner than later. His stripes are beginning to show. But, uh, you know, from everything I've seen so far, I think he's sort of the role of our local pawn in the whole global anti-capitalist movement, but unfortunately I'm not too sure anymore that he's an innocent pawn. To explain, allow me to refer to the original article by Gord Harrison, which was the subject of the letter uh, that I just read excerpts from. In that letter, back on April 23rd in The Londoner, uh, Harrison asked Pearson about his recent participation in the project up in Montreal with Al Gore, the climate change uh, meeting they had there. In that article, Pearson informed him that since Al Gore's inconvenient truth came out, there has been, quote, new updated research, end quote, included in the new Gore material. And, of course, that's where he says that the vast majority of scientists, over 90%, concur with Gore's findings, Pearson tells Harrison. Now, Note the change in the hierarchy of knowledge. <laughs> I thought it was funny. It's the scientists who agree with Gore's findings. As if, like, you know, Al Gore was the guy that did all the research. <laughs> Wasn't he the guy that claimed that he invented the Internet? Maybe, maybe he did. You know? And uh, these guys can say such amazingly stupid things and get away with them. A conservative or anybody even touching the right could never get away with this stuff. When I asked Pearson, this is uh, Harris talking again, uh, when I asked Pearson, oh, sorry, when I asked if Pearson thought Mr. Gore was a worthy spokesperson for environmental issues, he nodded. Absolutely. You can, you can tell that just by the presence of key scientists in Montreal. David Suzuki was also there giving his endorsement. He was something like a rock star to the general public. They came out in huge numbers to see him, end quote. Pearson informed Harrison that he's committed to doing at least 10 presentations of the updated Gore material over the next 12 months here in the city, I guess, including one to the United Church, which of course is that den of left-wing political activity, and to the London firefighters in May, apparently. Now there's a hostage audience. And as Mr. Gore continues to update the files, I have, I'll pass them along, concludes Gore's very willing pawn, our own good guy Glenn Pearson. And get this, during the interview, Pearson actually said, quote, I think we need more dialogue concerning climate change through the media and the public presentations like the ones I'll be holding in the next few months, end quote. And I'm going, 
Is he kidding? Did you guys just hear what David Suzuki just said a couple of minutes ago? <laughs> I thought Gore and Suzuki insisted that the debate was over. Everyone's agreed. There's no time for dialogue. Help, help, you know? Or is this part of the, uh, the new material? Of course, I'm just joking, because everybody knows that anything that's called dialogue in this country has been a liberal, one-sided dialogue that has nothing to do with entertaining any differences of opinion. As my good friend and well-known Canadian historian Joe Armstrong went so far out of his way to document and explain in his book, Farewell, the Peaceful Kingdom. In other words, just as I explicitly predicted on our April 10th show, more propaganda under the guise of dialogue. And I again restate my observation that never once have I seen anyone on the Weather Channel represent the other side of the issue. Not a once. So remember that no matter how nice someone might be in personal life, you know, no matter how nice Glenn Pearson might be in personal life, in the realm of politics, he's a liberal. And that's, remember the law of identity? We talked about that earlier. His party leader is Stefan Dion who should be committed, I mean, who, uh, who rather is committed to making the environment his key issue, to deflect from his obvious leadership issues and totally mindless values that he seems to endorse. And like both of them, Al Gore is a liberal, the U.S. version called a Democrat. And their intention is not to have a dialogue, but to end it. And I find it extraordinarily uh, difficult to believe that Glenn Pearson has never picked up a single copy of the National Post, has never heard of the Oregon Accord against Kyoto signed by thousands of scientists, vastly outnumbering the scientists funded through the Kyoto government financing. Now, I can believe that he might be unaware of this movement's totalitarian history and its evil philosophy, because that's something no one in politics or the popular media, of course, ever really talks about. But it's a project I'm working on at this very moment, and it's requiring a lot of reading under uh, non-CFL bulbs, as you'll find out about in a minute. And, uh, and a bunch, bunch of other research I have to do before I present that complete thesis to you. But, uh, you know, maybe, just maybe, at least some of us can engage in a dialogue on the issue because the people who are talking dialogue aren't going to be bringing a dialogue to us. They'll be bringing us a little bit more of what we're going to be hearing right now, and we'll be taking a quick break for a couple more clips and some messages, and when we return, more about what David Suzuki does not know. We're back after this. Why can't they legislate that we have hybrid cars and that we have solar panels on our homes and make it affordable? You tell me. Don't ask me. This is what I've been saying for years. We've got to, you know, governments have been under pressure. There's been a very strong right-wing movement to get government off the back of the people. Smaller government, less regulation, let the marketplace manage things. Governments have very few instruments at their disposal to change human behavior. But they do have two powerful tools. They can tax, and we've got to tax the things that we don't want and pull tax back from the things that we want to encourage. Stop taxing income and salaries. Let's tax pollution. We need a carbon tax. We need a carbon tax. Right now in Canada, the average uh, cost of, of a ton of garbage that we put in the landfill is $90 a ton. 
and yet we allow everybody to dump carbon into the atmosphere and we don't charge for that. Let's start charging for the carbon that we put into the atmosphere. And guess what? People will find ways to stop burning fossil fuels as much and, and reduce their carbon emissions. So we've got to use taxation to encourage the things we want and discourage the things that we don't want. And we need laws. We need laws. We've got to set targets and we've got to demand that those laws be met. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you disagree with anything I say or even agree. You just heard David Suzuki making some very interesting admissions there. And I know a lot of people hear that, and they think, oh, that's really goody-goody stuff, isn't it? It's all, you know, feel-good stuff. And maybe that's true, and that's the real reason it's a problem. Interestingly, what's the first question, you know, that he got asked there is, why don't we just pass laws to, uh, you know, force people to uh, have hybrid cars and put panels on their homes? And, and Suzuki responds, you know, he doesn't know why. Don't ask me. You know, it's the same as saying, why don't we just pass laws to make everybody rich? Would it happen? Why, do we, why, why stop at a $10 minimum wage? Why don't we just pass a law and make it $100? You know what the $10 minimum wage has already done to this province, and everybody's already forgotten about it. Lost 60,000 jobs, 20,000 per year, according to the party that brought the legislation in. They admit to it. So you've got to figure that's a conservative guess. Because anybody that, that was getting paid a little less than that $10 is either out of work or getting paid more, and there are fewer of them. That's how it works. You can't force things on the marketplace. It's, it's an incredible error to think that you can force technologies. And here's the weird part. Here is where Suzuki admits what he is attacking. He says there's been a very strong right-wing movement to get government off the back of the people in this country. Where is it, folks? Show me where that movement is. I have never seen it. I met, as far as I know, me and a handful of people around my my, my uh, sphere of influence. It's not the conservatives. It's not the liberals. It's not the NDP. Where is he hearing this? The movement that he's talking about isn't a movement, it's the people. It's the people who in their private lives are all really little capitalists looking after their self-interest and doing what they should do, keeping their nose out of other people's business. And, of course, here he is, the ultimate fascist statement, we can use taxes to change human behavior. Holy smokes, I don't know how anybody can say it. It's almost like admitting you're a child abuser or something. I don't get it. Uh, you know, and, and we need a carbon tax. Get, this is, and I've talked about this before, you know, I, I could be losing it when I hear stupid things like this. Think about, I don't think he's ever thought this through, has he? And he has up to a point, you can see. He says, we need a, you know, we got to stop taxing incomes and salaries. Now, I agree with that, okay? Not for his reasons, though. He says tax pollution. We need a carbon tax. Okay, now think about that for a minute. We make all of our government services dependent on pollution. Our health care systems paid for by taxes. Our education systems paid for by taxes. Our, our, our welfare system is paid for by taxes. And then, you know, and then he says that if we do this, people will reduce their carbon consumption. Well, if we do that, where are we getting the taxes from? He hasn't even thought it out that far. He's, he's got himself in a loop before he even gets off the ground. It's an, it's an absurdity. It's hard to even address something that's so stupid. It's stupid. <laughs> it's hard to 
put an intelligent argument to something so outrageously self-contradictory. I don't want my government services dependent on people emitting, quote, pollution. By the way, CO2 is not pollution. We don't need laws for CO2. We've been through that all the time. What he's really targeting is what he said. The right wing, the marketplace, doesn't want the marketplace to manage things. He wants to manage them. Him, Al Gore, and his buddies. That's what this is about. They're telling it to your, to your folks, or folks right to your faces. Listen to them. Don't think they're just joking around. All the dictators of the world did the same thing, told people right to their faces, this is what you're going to get. And they all went, yeah, 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 yeah. And then after three or four million of them died in one world war and a couple more in the next world war, they still haven't caught on. And I, if you think I'm being too strong about this, I haven't even started. I'm being very, very light yet because the information I'll be bringing to you over the coming shows in the future will make this stuff seem like uh, like popcorn, I, I just tell you. But uh, David Suzuki, I see him anymore. I just uh, don't have very much respect for the man. I just cannot believe that he's doing this. A carbon head tax, can you imagine? Uh, if you have a carbon footprint, you breathe carbon, you exhale carbon. There might be a, an automatic birth tax for every child that's brought into the planet to pay this tax because, remember, we talked about that, the environmentalists talking about how it's immoral to have children and all that stuff. There's that morality again. So uh, you can see where that's going. Now, there's another um, whole element to all of this, too, and we see it coming now uh, I, call, I guess I'll call this section lightheaded legislation because it has to do with CFL bulbs and, and our freedom. And I saw a great article in the National Post by Ian Hunter, Professor Emeritus Faculty of Law at Western, May 6th. The road to serfdom is lit by CFL bulbs. And he asks, how many congressmen does it take to change a light bulb? And he, we know the answer to this one, he says, 314 to 100 with 19 abstentions in the U.S. Congress who passed the Energy Independence and Security Act, which, among other things, bans incandescent light bulbs after the year 2011. Notice it's uh, not about the environment. It's the Energy Independence and Security Act, okay? But they'll push it on you as environment, okay? You're, you're the idiot. You have, to, you have to believe it's the environment when it's for other reasons. Of course, no sooner had the Americans done this and Canadians, as represented by the Harper Tories in Ottawa and the McGuinty Liberals in Toronto, leapt aboard the bandwagon by agreeing to ban conventional light bulbs here too. When I saw this, I did what every reader should do. I went to my local hardware store and stocked up on conventional bulbs. I worried I might be too late, but not so. I had the incandescent aisle all to myself and found all wattages to choose from. By contrast, the fluorescent aisle, at least on the day I was there, was crowded with sheep, only too willing to be told by Dalton McGinty how to light their homes. How anyone can read by the sickly white light, and I've got a lot more to say on that one in a moment, folks, that the curly cues give off baffles me. But then, since practically no one reads anymore, and the way our schools are going, and there's two issues right there that I could spend uh, two shows on each one, and I haven't even done one on either yet. But the way they're going, no, soon no one will be able to read. And the twisty bulbs may just be what Canadians want. If so, the darkness about to descend will not be illuminated by light bulbs of any variety. Now, just as I might have been tempted to despair, along comes Republican Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, who last month introduced the Light Bulb Freedom of Choice Act. Quote, I wish this was an April Fool's joke, but it's not, she began. Fundamentally, it is an issue of freedom. It is about whether people will be able to make even the most basic decisions anymore, or whether Big Brother will control every aspect of their lives. 
Her bill would forbid the U.S. government from banning conventional light bulbs until the Government Accountability Office conducts independent tests to prove that fluorescent bulbs, one, will reduce homeowners' energy bills. It won't, by the way, because you could turn off all your lights and your bill will still go up. Two, will significantly reduce our carbon footprint. It won't, and that's an irrelevancy. And three, will not increase health risks for vulnerable populations in hospitals, schools, daycare centers, and nursing homes, end quote. Ms. Bachman's critics have been more numerous than her defenders. What particularly galls such people is that she challenges received environmental wisdom. This consigns her to a basket containing Holocaust deniers, young earthers, and Darwinian skeptics. Ms. Bachman is a heretic in the Green Church of Pastor Gore and as such faces excommunication. For my part, I wish her well, but I rather suspect she'll prove to be a Donna Quixote, tilting at windmills, which is why, on this one, I prefer hoarding to protest, end quote. And that was Ian Hunter. So, uh, you know, that there's a wonderful analogy, and it's, of course, more than an analogy. I used the, the same one. Now, back on, uh, the, back on the January 28th show of this year, uh, I did a subject called Light Bulbs, Privacy, and Freedom, and how everything the government does chips away at your personal freedoms and responsibilities. And I told you a story at that time about how uh, in my apartment I got a power of entry one day and they came in to change the light bulbs of all things as they would do, say, uh, a repair or something like that. And they replaced my incandescence with these new CFL light bulbs. And uh, I told you a bit about my story and you can check that. I don't want to go over all that stuff again because there's a lot of issues involved involved with it, including a lot of, uh, of light bulb jokes, you know. How many so-and-sos does it take to screw in a light bulb? Check out the show. You'll have some fun. But what I haven't told you yet is the consequences of that light bulb escapade by London Hydro and how my own personal experience has yet again proved how the gross mismanagement and misdirection of government resources and efforts always almost seems to be completely unavoidable and inevitable. So I'll tell you about that and a little more David Suzuki right now with this break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. I believe that in another 30 years, if you fly over a city, you won't be able to see the city. You know why? Because every roof, all of the roads, they're going to be green. We've got to capture as much sunlight as we can get everywhere. Cities have got to capture that sunlight. The buildings are going to be coated in a skin uh, photocells that are going to absorb sunlight and you're going to catch all of the rain will then and what I envision are buildings in which you've got plants draped on the sides as well and so all of those are capturing sunlight as it rains the rain is going to trickle down and be captured feeding those plants and uh, and and we're going to be you're going to see very uh, much less evidence of cars because we're going to live in areas where we can work play and uh, and live and we'll be on the streets we'll be walking not taking a car everywhere we'll be walking and meeting our neighbors have a sense of community the obesity crisis that we're dealing with what do you think that is it's because we won't get our fat behinds out of the car we've we we jump in a car to drive five blocks in the future we won't do anything like that i believe that we're going to live in a way that makes much more physical sense spiritual sense and social sense and we've got to get on with that. And for me, that's a wonderful thing.
I'm constantly turning the lights off behind them. And electronics. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Keep at it mining even replace some old appliances. And started time shifting. Yeah. Dr. Suzuki. Please, David. the power it's up to you to start saying hey remember wow i just about lost it when i saw that ad i just couldn't believe what i was looking at i don't know if i don't know how many of you realize what you're looking at there is david suzuki in an ad for powerwise.ca if you want to check out whatever they might have there sitting in the dark with some kids around him. i think they got a flashlight or something and he's telling them how they have the power now think about that for a minute. Think about that image for a minute. What's he talking about? What's David Suzuki really talking about? He's not talking about electrical power. He's talking about political power. That's the only power they got as they sit in the dark, whispering to each other and blaming their parents, who, by the way, pay all the bills, uh, for ruining their future because their parents won't conserve by turning lights off. My goodness, you know, when the little kid goes, David, I have a friend and his parents don't believe in conserving, you know, and he goes, you have the power. I think it's the most oxymoronic, contradictory, outrageously funny ironies you could possibly wrap up in a single sentence. I mean, there they are, all sitting in the dark, talking about conserving and turning off even the lighting necessary to see each other, for heaven's sakes. And Suzuki's telling them, you've got the power. When, in fact, the very thing being turned off and being taken away from those children is power. Literally. And this is child abuse for fascism. I'm sorry. I said it before on this show, and if you missed my story about how Earth Day affected my six-year-old grandson and the kind of things, you know, that, that are coming out, check out the show, Are You One of the Bad People? Because I'll tell you, this is getting, this is not science. You know, even in David Suzuki's, his, his afterlife uh, thing there he had there, his future, how he sees cities in 30 years with no cars and stuff. Listen, I drive my car three blocks. I live three blocks from work, and I still drive my car. But the fact that I live three blocks means I don't have to use a lot of fuel. And sure, I walk sometimes, but it's not convenient. I have, to, I have other things I've got to do. I just don't go back and forth between the home and work. I've got to pick up my grandson from my mom's. I've got to drive people around. I've got to come here to CHRW. I don't, can't be running around all the time. I've got to carry things. I've got to move stuff. It just doesn't work that way. So, you know, he's talking about capturing all this sunlight with photocell-coded cell buildings. You know how much chemical that requires and the pollution required and the whole production of all that stuff? Uh, and then he talks about physical sense, social sense, and spiritual sense. You know, we've got to get on with that. In every respect, Suzuki operates on a primitive, mystical level of thinking. Physical, social, and spiritual sense. Not common sense, not reason, not freedom, not consent, not thinking at all. Physical, social, and spiritual are, are not about thought. They're about emotion and about subjectivism, which is a proven formula for apocalypse, which is also part of their religion. And, you know, the most evil and despised dictators in history all operated on this exact kind of thinking, which I will be demonstrating for you a lot more in the future. Now, a quick... I only got about 10 minutes left here, and I got a story to tell about my own personal illumination and, and about what happened with these uh, CFL light bulbs in my apartment. Now, in my own apartment unit, you know, our landlord, with the help of London Hydro and laws that give them power of entry to do repairs, etc., replaced 11 incandescents I had uh, in the receptacles with 11 CFL bulbs. 
these were all in fixtures that belonged to the landlord only. They didn't replace any that were in my own fixtures, like lamps in my living room or bedroom or the fluorescence I already had operating above my kitchen counter. Now, under the working theory, you know, that tit-for-tat, one hour of powering a CFL bulb uses less than one hour of powering an incandescent bulb, this would appear, in theory, to represent a tremendous energy and you know, savings in energy, wouldn't it? But as I've said before, and now i got a chance to even demonstrate it personally, this is a totally linear, two-dimensional, and strictly theoretical kind of thinking, which are the only dimensions in which the left is capable of thinking or functioning. As soon as you go on you know, beyond simple arithmetic and enter a field of mathematics and the highly variable, multi-dimensional fields of geometry, algebra, and reality, the measurement and study of relationships and variables, well, you can already see why the left doesn't want to go there, because that would defy all attempts at control, not only in practice, which is constantly being demonstrated that that doesn't work, but that won't stop them, but also in theory, because that just might stop them. Now, let me demonstrate for you how all these multidimensional and variable factors manifest themselves in my most humble, yet functional and comfortable apartment. Okay, 11, 11 incandescents for 11 CFLs. Let's do a countdown and look at each bulb individually to see if there was really a savings realized in my apartment. Two of the bulbs, one each, were in my two walk-in closets. One of these closets is sort of my version of a basement, which I store stuff from floor to ceiling that I very infrequently use or require, like memorabilia, artificial Christmas tree, tools, you know, camping equipment, toys for the kids when they visit, that kind of stuff. So in the course of a year, I may turn on this bulb in that closet maybe once or twice, since I don't even turn it on most times when I just go in to get something from it. Now, I admit my access to my second walk-in closet was a little more frequent, and one time I couldn't get into that one either. But it's been clearing out, but I hardly ever use it in, term, in terms of leaving the light on in there, and I still can't see any savings. When you take into account the difference in cost between the bulb that was replaced and the one replacing it, so that's two bulbs down, nine to go. Two bulbs, uh, wattage unknown, and my bedroom were replaced. I virtually never turn on my bedroom light because I use a lamp with a 40-watt bulb in it instead. Power savings, nil. Capital cost, the bulb price differential, increased. One bulb in my kitchen was replaced. Again, the overhead light, I never, ever use it. It's just the way I live. I don't use that light because I use a fluorescent above the counter and the light above the stove, neither of which were changed or replaced. So power savings nil, capital cost, the bulb price differential increased. Now here's a real bizarre one. Three bulbs were replaced in my dining room light fixture, one of those fixtures, you know, with three fancy and ugly <laughs> light receptacles. Actually, they looked nicer in there, at least when they were off. Uh, combined with a three-speed three uh, ceiling fan. Now, in that fixture, I previously inserted three 40-watt bulbs, but left one of them unscrewed because I even found that too bright for what I wanted over the table when I turned it on, which, again, was practically never. So, you know, my dining room area is almost like a second storage area. <laughs> so in one fixture, three 40-watt bulbs were replaced by three CFLs, and when I turned that light on to impress guests and visitors to my home, without exception, everyone said, do they come with sunglasses? Because <laughs> the light was absolutely blinding. With three bulbs giving off almost the equivalent of 200-watt incandescent bulbs. But since in my case I'll never turn them on, you know, power savings nil, capital cost, the price differential in the bulb increased. 
However, in this case, a future tenant who may actually use that fixture, the equation would more likely be power savings negative because the CFLs they put in use more than the 40-watt light bulbs that they took out. Because uh, they gave me one, only they only gave you one wattage. By the way, they didn't go through and say, oh, "Okay, that was a 60." Well, no, everything was the same, and that's the way government does everything, right? And uh, of course, now they generate a lot more light, so capital cost uh, increased there too. Now, my living room had no fixtures belonging to the landlord, so any lighting in there was totally unaffected. And uh, nor would I be able to use CFLs there on my dimmer switch lamp or, you know, any of that kind of stuff because it just won't work. So power savings, nil. Capital cost, nil. In fact, ironically, that ended up being their best deal where they didn't do the replacement. They actually broke even on this. So three bulbs to go. Eight down, three to go. Entrance hall light fixture. One incandescent replaced by one CFL. Now, this was the best deal for the landlord considering energy. A 60-watt incandescent was replaced by a CFL, which gives approximately the same light. And I actually use this light, so they might save a little bit of energy there, but I can't say how much. But finally, they replaced two bulbs in my study, which is technically, you know, the second bedroom of the unit. But I actually live in this room where I prepare the show, do a lot of regular work, and do a lot of reading. Now, the new CFL, or CFL bulbs seem to give off about the equivalent lumens as, what, as was replaced, and I actually felt good about the fact there would be actually, hey, maybe some real savings somewhere in my unit. But then it happened, something I rarely, almost never experience, headaches. Things were okay for the first few days, but then I noticed this creeping, you know, what I assumed was a tension headache, which is, it just wasn't going away, no matter how much I stretched, exercised. I was convinced I was getting a brain tumor, okay? You, you know how the imagination runs wild. So I have to be honest with you here. Vaguely in the back of my mind, I'm jokingly telling myself that maybe it could be the light from the CFLs. But I'm almost going out of my way to avoid my prejudice, and I dismiss it out of hand because the first few days were okay, and... Uh, you know, but I was still getting my headaches when I walked out of the room, so I wasn't blaming it on that. But irony of ironies. Here I am watching the Weather Channel, that wonderfully propagandist channel promoting anti-capitalism through global warming, and here are some researchers commenting on the number of people who get headaches under the CFL's lighting. And i got to tell you, I suffered with these headaches for a good few weeks. And they persisted when I was away from my apartment, so I wasn't relating it. And then when I saw that feature, uh, next thing I did was I changed those bulbs, took them out, and sure enough, in a couple of days, my headaches went away again. Power savings, nil. Capital cost increased by both the cost of the CFLs, now not being used, plus the replacement cost of the incandescents, which I had to put in. And, uh, you know, I couldn't use my old ones. They took them away, so there was a double expense. And so you can see how this just wasn't working. I don't think that they saved anything with, with mine other than in the capital cost of bulbs, which is a net income for the landlord, who's the only winner in all this because the taxpayer pays for it. But there's another cost. You know, I would easily have put down a couple hundred bucks to get rid of that headache for, for a couple of weeks that I had. Uh, this was a personal cost, and it was paid by me alone. And then there's also costs to the environment and pocketbook. You know, the capital is being destroyed. When you destroy all those incandescent bulbs in a feeble effort to speed an otherwise natural process, you're incurring a lot of extra cost and waste because those bulbs already had money and capital put into them. It's like, uh, you know, running a race, getting up to the finishing line and not crossing the line because you decide, well, I'm not going to finish the race. 
they already had costs built into them, you know, the production costs, the material that made them, the cost of the labor and capital that assembled them, all that just thrown away, literal wealth tossed out the window. So you can see how this is not um, working out in terms of uh, a savings of any sort. And if the CFLs did indeed prove themselves in the marketplace, then the transition will occur automatically which is what happens when landlords unilaterally chose to install lightings like that in their hallways, where it makes a lot of sense. Those, light, those lights are on 365 days a, a, year, a week, or a year rather, 24 hours a day. No question they're going to save money on that. But where there are behavioral you know, variables in choice, all of the arithmetic crumbles in a second. So basically, what is it all equal? a completely incalculable and unpredictable result, which is why government projections are always so off the mark. It also equals the fact that linear thinking is a lot more easier to market, which is why they keep doing it. So, uh, you know, in my own personal life bulb example, the landlords are the winners. Uh, you know, who's the loser? If you're not sure, got a mirror somewhere. Does it reflect CFL light? Ah, well, what can I say? That's it for this week. So, next week, folks, we hope you'll join us again, and we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, stay right, be right, do right, act right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. I was in Victoria, British Columbia. Been to Victoria? Yeah. I checked out the BC Museum. BC Museum, British Columbia Museum, yes. They had this nature exhibit where they had all these stuffed moose. So I thought that was pretty cruel, right? So I walk up to the girl, I go, excuse me, ma'am, did you just shoot all these animals and put them in here for our entertainment? You know what she said? She goes, no, sir, you got us all wrong. These animals here, they've all been donated because they're roadkill. Exactly. I'm walking along going, well, who the hell hit that walrus then, huh? <laughs> <laughs>